The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. We engage with digital technologies whether we like it or not. Behaviors that are revealing of our innermost thoughts and personal activities have become digital data. Rather than sitting back and being subject to data collectors' policies on how they make, store, and analyze data about us, we need to start directing the conversation to make our future in data one embedded in human rights. Happy Thursday, everyone. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and this is the Next Big Idea Daily. So who knows that you're listening to this episode right now? Anyone? Probably just you, right? If you're listening through earphones. Well, how about the podcast app you're using? The people who work there, in theory, know what podcasts you're listening to. And if you have an account with them, they probably have your email address, maybe your credit card details or other information about you. And of course, they very well may sell that information to other companies. So who owns your data? You may think you do, but the law is far from clear, and large companies are acquiring and selling reams of information about you without your informed consent. But there are things we can do to fight back, says Wendy H. Wong, author of the new book, We the Data, Human Rights in the Digital Age. Wendy is an award-winning author, professor of political science, and principals research chair at the University of British Columbia. She joins us now to share some big ideas from her book. These days, we hear a lot about data about people, or data taken from people. We're often confronted with news about how companies are using data in ways we find troubling, including to track our behavior across the internet, or as free fodder for generative AI like ChatGPT. Perhaps we feel that we can't help but fall victim to these incidents because of how our daily lives are structured and organized. Many of us have smartphones and depend on the internet to conduct our day-to-day activities. We engage with digital technologies whether we like it or not. Tapping into public transit, patronizing stores that use loyalty programs, or even facial recognition technology, or walking through the streets with digital doorbells like Ring on many houses. Our lives are, in short, datafied. Behaviors that are revealing of our innermost thoughts and personal activities have become digital data. We might also feel like data subjects. Data are being taken from us, but we have very little to say about the matter, and we feel we have very little choice but to be subjected to such data collection. We need to understand what it means to be a data source, how important this role is, and why, even in a sea of data sources, we don't have to lose to powerful data collectors like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and Meta. To be a stakeholder, we need to make our voices heard. This is currently quite difficult because there are so many of us as data sources. Billions of us, in fact. But that's also because we're not thinking about data as something intrinsically human. Instead, the way we are often told to think about data is as a commodity, something to be bought and sold, like oil. Data are, quote, dust or detritus or exhaust. We're told we're the product if we're not paying. Now imagine a world where we thought about data not as part of the market, but as part of us, as human, and part and parcel with our lives. 
What if data were subject to the globally endorsed framework of human rights? Stakeholdership means we have skin in the game and we have an entitlement to speak up. Rather than sitting back and being subject to data collectors' policies on how they make, store, and analyze data about us, we need to start directing the conversation to make our future in data one embedded in human rights. Digital data are sticky. They're sticky like gum on the bottom of your shoe, and they have fundamentally changed the way we live. Nowadays, we probably all know how easily replicable and transferable digital data are. That's because digital technologies are pervasive. But data are sticky not just because we can move them around. They're sticky for four other reasons. First, they're about mundane things. Think about all the actions you take online, through your devices, or somehow when you're connected to a network each and every day. You can't change these activities by and large. They are every day. They are also unremarkable. They might even be said to be boring. Data are now created about the most granular of our activities, from heartbeats to search terms and beyond. Secondly, data are effectively forever once made. Perhaps they got deleted somewhere along the way, but because we don't know where they go or what collectors do with them, they are immortal for all intents and purposes. Which leads to the third sticking point. Data are linked. Data don't just sit on a server once created. They're sorted, they're pooled, disaggregated and re-aggregated to spit out predictions. Data travel from data set to data set as they're bought and sold. And finally, data are co-created. Remember, you're half of the equation of data as the data source. Your activities are of interest to data collectors who decide to create the ways to harvest data about you. So few data that exist in the world are truly, quote, yours, even data about your innermost feelings. As such, data are co-created between you and a data collector. Also, many of the data about us are not interesting on their own. They're interesting to collectors because of what they tell us about people like us for predictive purposes. When we talk about the co-creation of data, this really confounds some of the existing ways that we have tied human rights to datafication and AI. We're used to thinking about the multinational firms that drive the digital economy or big tech as powerful because they are wealthy, incredibly, historically wealthy. But money is just one way to exercise power. In fact, the nature of big tech's creations and their role in collecting data have given them more than just economic power. They also govern in ways we're used to thinking about states doing. Governing means creating order around shared expectations. It means setting rules and finding ways to enforce those rules. Governing is what we expect governments to do. Yet more and more, big tech can said to be governing as well. They create and control the digital platforms through which we access services and create social and political connections. For example, Meta controls the community standards on its platforms, Instagram and Facebook. These standards set the basis for the kinds of speech that can happen on these platforms. Between its different platforms, which also includes WhatsApp and Messenger, Meta reaches more than 3 billion people. That's far more people than any government can legitimately claim to govern. 
Meta's oversight board, a body that uses human rights to evaluate what gets removed or reinstated on Facebook and Instagram, makes decisions that affect people the world over. Right now, human rights responsibility falls on states. Big tech falls under businesses, which must respect human rights. But what if they don't? As of this recording, Google and Facebook are blocking Canadian access to news because of a dispute with the federal government over compensating journalism outlets. By denying millions of people access to news and updated information, our abilities to exercise freedom of expression and conscience, at minimum, are at stake. If we are to use human rights effectively in the age of data, we must start thinking about how big tech governs our daily lives, including what we can share, but also what we know. Not holding big tech accountable as governors means we aren't holding them responsible for the changes they have brought to human lives. Data literacy will help us be data stakeholders. Data literacy should be seen as part of what we think about the universal right to education. Human life will continue to be data-centric, and as such, learning about data, how to make data, how to use data, and the implications of creating digital data have become core human experiences. Without a human right, in other words, a universal entitlement to data literacy, we risk leaving most of us behind while the few data collectors make leaps and bounds by exploiting those data about us. Literacy is about giving people skills in order to function in a data-driven society. What does it mean, though, to realize a right to data literacy? Already, there are community-based programs that show us we don't have to be data scientists to understand the basic premises behind data creation. In fact, we need to learn more about why our assumptions about the world matter and how our choices of data sources and how we make data really matter for what we can learn and what we know. Going forward, we need to think about primary and secondary school curricula. Estonia has led the way with developing extensive educational programming and data literacy, and other countries are getting there. But retooling curricula takes time, and countries vary with which parts of society deliver basic education. In the meantime, we should reprioritize libraries as stewards of data and data literacy. Libraries are foundational in giving people linguistic literacy skills. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be looking towards and funding libraries to help give us the wide societal reach we need to bring about data literacy. Finally, outside of data literacy, we should also be looking towards shifting how data scientists, computer scientists, and engineers are trained. Not only should they be thinking about questions of ethics, they should be also enlightened to think about how their future creations will affect society through more intensive coursework in humanities and social science research. Thank you, Wendy. Everyone, for what it's worth, we here at the Next Big Idea Club are not in the business of selling your data. We're only in the business of providing you with fascinating ideas, drawing from the best in new nonfiction. If you don't already have our app, look for the Next Big Idea in your app store. And come on back tomorrow when we'll have author and podcaster Liel Leibowitz, author of the new book, How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, surprisingly modern advice from a very old book, just in time for Hanukkah. I'm Michael Kovnett. 
See you tomorrow.